Marketing your photography business, website optimization and strategy is now available for streaming and download at proedu.com. You sound so official. It's marketing at its best for mm-hmm. photographers. If you're tired of wasting your money on pho- marketing. If you're tired of wasting your money, period. You want to know how period. to get the word out about you? You need, check, to, you need to create it out. a hub. Check it out. It's our, most, it's our most viewed tutorial this quarter. That's impressive. It's actually really good. It's a really good tutorial. It's fantastic. Welcome to the Pro EDU Podcast, where Rob and Gary talk and drink with your favorite photographers. So grab yourself a cold sarsaparilla and saddle up. In this episode, we are doing it live on video with Carl Taylor yeah. and Bobby Digital, a.k.a. <laughs> Rob Grimm, a.k.a. Bobby De Niro is in the house. Bobby Digital? When did that come Bobby out? Bobby Digital. That came up in... <laughs> Bobby Dollar has been around. Bobby Digital has been around forever. No, I don't think so. Carl, thank you for being our, our first guest on this new video podcast setup. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's yeah. it's been maybe four or five years since I started following you, and obviously you're a huge influence in the education and commercial photography market. Uh, and it's been really great to see that the quality of content that that you put out. Um, when did that start for you? When did you start doing kind of educational stuff? Um, it started about eleven years ago, actually. Um, first started off um, because, like Rob, I work as a commercial. Uh, photographer mostly in advertising product photography and I just you know when when digital became popular most people started buying these Canon and Nikon digital cameras and it became like a mad craze everyone wanted to know about them and I got asked to do a couple of workshops and speaking events and talking about cameras and I really enjoyed sort of imparting the knowledge about photography and from that idea, I just, well, the idea grew about how can I reach more people with this? And we, uh, I partnered with a media company and we set up um, the education side of the business. Initially, we were, we were on DVD. So we did DVDs for many years, uh, a bit like you guys, you know, just trying to turn out quality content and uh, provide the market with, um, with, with the information that they need because uh, obviously, when I was growing up as a commercial photographer, the only real good information you could get was from assisting other photographers. And right. I'm sure, Rob, you'll, you'll, you'll be the same as well. You know, a lot of this information was hard to come by back in the day. Impossible. Uh, there was a few, yeah, impossible. And there was a few good books and there was a few, a few bits and pieces. So I kind of just thought there was a gap in the market for this. And we started off really with the beginner type stuff and then we progressed more into commercial, more into other genres um, as the as the market demand for it sort of grew. And then that transitioned into uh, away from DVDs and we're now on uh, a membership uh, model, basically. Do you remember the very first educational product you made? What was it? Yes. 
Yeah, we still have it actually. It's on it's on our platform. It's called Introduction to Photography, and that basically our ethos on that one was to start someone who's just got a, a DSLR or an SLR camera and introduce them straight away to using the camera in manual mode. Because for me, you know, you can mess about trying to teach people about aperture priority and shutter priority and automatic modes. But for me, I don't think mastering manual mode is that difficult. You know, you really only have three things to think about with your exposure. So I just wanted everything to focus around those sort of five key fundamentals associated with uh, using a camera in manual mode. And that's what that first course was about. And that was kind of the starting platform if you like before you move on to any of our other stuff how are you balancing being an educator and still being a, a professional photographer because i know for me edu has kind of taken over my life and it's it's a difficult thing to balance working for clients as well as doing the education particularly your education platform because it is really deep and obviously that comes from years of, of building it up uh, but you have a ton of content out there which means you have spent a lot of time planning, filming, editing, putting the, the entire, you know, kind of campus of your, of your education platform together. Basically accidentally ended up working in a camera store, um, which was just by fluke really, because I needed a job. I didn't even want to work in a camera store. I oh just needed God. a job. Um, <laughs> That's a dream for me to be in a camera store. You know, the old fashioned camera stores were the greatest. Well, they were because back then it was it was all film, and I remember yeah. looking and, and studying, you know, an F1 Canon and a T90 Canon, and you know the T50, the T70 cameras, the old Nikon FM2s, yeah. some of the Mamiya RZ67s and stuff. And um, so I worked in a camera store. That was my first introduction to proper photography, and I. Uh, the, the guys at the store, they wanted to train you on photography so you knew what you were talking about. So they sure. used to give you cameras and they set you assignments to go out and shoot pictures at the weekend. And then they would do like a, a weekly sort of critique on what you'd done to oh, try and help you progress. Uh, and uh, it was from basically doing that that I just became obsessed with photography and then I didn't stay in the job in the camera store for too long, but um, I just made it my life to want to be a photographer from that moment onwards. And I just saved a lot of money, worked a few jobs uh, simultaneously, doing about three different jobs to save money. And then I just took the cameras that I bought, um, which I think at the time was a Canon F1, a T90, some uh, lenses, the old FD manual focused lenses. And I went off around the world for a couple of years traveling and shooting with the hope of becoming a photojournalist. And then when I, I got back from that trip, I started submitting my work to magazines, to newspapers, and, and said, look, I've got some ideas for some future travel, some future stories about this particular region or that particular region. And a few of the publishers came back. They said, yeah, we like some of the shots you've done. We won't pay you up front, but we'd be very interested to see the work that you come up with um, from your future trips. So I set off again after coming back home, working for six months, saving some money, and then uh, went off again. I mean, I was living really, really cheaply, you know, backpack, camera gear, staying in places that cost a dollar a night and just really roughing it. Yeah. And um, I did that then for a few years. 
And I started selling my work and my stories. I was trying to write stories as well to go with the images. Did a lot of remote regions through Papua New Guinea, uh, Indonesia, Sulawesi, uh, Sumatra. Visited a lot of uh, the very primitive tribes uh, that live in some of those regions uh, through Borneo as well. And uh, started selling stories. But what I learned in doing it for a few years was that you don't really get paid a great deal of money as a photojournalist and you're kind of living hand to mouth from one job sure. to the next job. And after a few years of living like that and working like that, I kind of just had enough. And that's when I decided I need to make a career change in photography. And I started looking at what my options could be because I'd never used lighting. Uh, just basically everything I was doing was natural light, mm -hmm. maybe a couple of speed lights and stuff. And I didn't really understand about lighting, um, but I was fascinated by uh, advertising style images, product images, fashion images. They always look so polished and you know so immaculate. So I then uh, worked as an assistant um, in Australia actually for a while uh, and then back in the UK and then it was that that gave me my fascination towards manipulating light you know and understanding light and I'm sure you're the same Rob I see you know with your food photography you, you know it's that polished lighting look yeah. to really make the product look desirable mm -hmm. uh, and it's that part of the process that I found really fascinating and that's when I switched into uh, that genre of photography. Yeah, I found something very cathartic about spending your time crafting light and just really bringing shape even to a salad. Um, you know, it's, yeah. there's something that's really beautiful about that. And that's very different from the life of a reportage photographer where you are um, and at your time too, you're carrying like some of the heaviest lenses you possibly could, you know, in a shoulder <laughs> bag across Papua New Guinea. Um, how did you yeah. go about researching some of the places where you were going? Because you weren't, you, it sounds like you weren't on actual assignment, like given the assignment no. by the the newspaper or the magazine. You were actually doing the research and then just going. How, how was that yeah, process well, for you? Um, I suppose my, my initial interest was um, when I was younger, when I was a teenager, I always had a fascination with photography through National Geographic magazine. Mm -hmm. I used to be a right nerd and I used to read National Geographic magazine like it was gold for me, that magazine. I used to love looking at the images and reading about these far-flung flung, flung places. And the other thing that we're blessed with here in the UK is a guy called David Attenborough who makes oh, sure. these amazing natural history programs. Yeah. So I grew up with National Geographic and David Attenborough's natural history program. So I always had this fascination about storytelling, images, and the natural world. Um, so I had a strong interest in that from an early age. And then when I did my first set of traveling, I went to a lot of remote places on that trip that kind of opened my eyes to a few things. And they set the ideas in motion for what I could do on the future trips. So I just did a lot of my own research, um, you know, just various books, various magazines. The Internet wasn't even around Same. at that time. Um, so so it was mostly books, mostly library and stuff. But some of it came from my first travels where, you know, when you're actually in a country, you learn things more rapidly about other things in that country and then I made notes on that and then researched it further when I when I got home from the first trip what were some of the dangers you encountered did you ever get ripped off have your cameras go missing 
No, I had a lot of dodgy moments and incidents, though. I had a gun put to my head in Borneo on a riverboat once. Um, I had... um, we were we were working because I, I was traveling with another guy as well, uh, a good friend of mine who came with me on one of the trips. We were in uh, Irian Jaya, which is the western half of Papua New Guinea, which is the Indonesian half of uh, of Papua Island. And we were up in the tribal highlands. Um, we did this massive long trek. We were on foot for weeks on end, getting to these really remote places. And uh, there was a big altercation in one of the villages and the the, the machetes came out and Mm. someone got stabbed badly. It it, it wasn't addressed towards us, but it was it was quite horrific. So there there were a few things that were a bit dodgy and a bit dangerous, but I never really personally felt in any danger. I felt more in danger from the actual environment or sometimes, you know, having to climb around a cliff ledge or something you know and 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 stuff like that um or worrying about malaria or something else you know but um the camera equipment i problems i had was mostly to do with humidity so i had some lens issues with fungus and humidity because it's so warm and humid there in the in the rainforest and i had to make a a couple of trips Uh, i kind of use singapore and hong kong as sort of external bases outside of uh out of the in that area because i could always rely on going there get my kodachrome film processed get my cameras serviced and um you know basically that that was the other thing actually was carrying all that film i was carrying you know like 40 or 60 rolls of kodachrome uh and ectochrome stuff with me and then, you know, the danger was that you're traveling after you've done a shoot and then yep. you're going to the next place and you've still got the rolls of film in those capsules, you yep. know, and you're trying to keep everything safe and it's hot and it's warm and you don't want to spend too many months with it on you because, as you know, the heat is going to make that film deteriorate. Absolutely. So um, so, so we were either sh- having to uh, tr- post the film back to a lab i remember the lab was rgb color in singapore and get that film processed and then they'd hold it until i got back to singapore uh, to collect it Uh, and that was obviously back in the days when you didn't know what you'd shot whether it worked or not because you (laughs) not until you got the negatives back do you have any countries you have any countries you'd never go back to um no i don't think so um uh, everywhere I've been, I've I've really enjoyed. Um, there's a couple of places. I mean, India I've been to as well, which was was really good, and it can be quite chaotic. But I quite liked the madness of it all. You know, it's just you know back then, obviously I was mid twenties, no wife, no kids, no responsibility. So you, you kind of didn't matter. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Now I wouldn't do that because I've got two young kids got a wife, got responsibilities, got a business, got staff. So there's no way I'd go and do that sort of stuff now. What do you like about cameras now? They, they have changed so drastically. I mean, clearly you don't have to store your film in lead bags and hope they don't get ripped off. Like I got ripped off in London and lost tons of exposed film, which, yeah, I know those guys just dumped it in the, in the you know, trash bag. But what, what do you love about cameras now? Because they have changed so drastically over your career. Um. I don't actually love anything about cameras at all, to be honest. Um, I'm not a gear sort of 
I'm not a gear sort of person, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, with all that gear um, in the background, you're not a gear guy. <laughs> Come on, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> he I lives in a, in a brown color showroom, yeah. and he says he doesn't like gear. <laughs> that, you see, this is this is great because this is exactly um, this is a this is a good point to make. Um, for me, all of that crap behind me and the Hasselblad or the Canons or whatever or the Sony film cameras. They're all just tools, you know, they're just tools right. to use to do the job. And I don't sort of get too precious about them. I do, I must admit, you know, there is something satisfying about shooting with my H6. And, you know, you, you shoot a great product image and you look at the tonal detail and you think, oh, that's silky smooth. And you love it, you know, you mm -hmm. love the result. But I love it for, the, for it as a tool, you know. I'm not kind right. of like, I, I never use the autofocus. I never use the light meter in it. I always, fo you know, I'm focusing manually. I'm in manual mode. So it's just a functional tool. And and that's it really, you know? Yeah. So so gear-wise, I, I don't get too... Do you know, actually, the, the bit of gear that I've been getting excited about recently is I've been flying a DJI drone thing. I've been learning to fly one. The guy here at work that usually yeah. flies it for our filming... He's been teaching me how to fly. I got I got the new DJI Mavic 2 Pro with the Hasselblad camera thing. Yeah. And uh, yeah. that's been quite an exciting little gadget, you know. So if any gear has excited me late, lately, I've been kind of getting addicted to flying <laughs> this thing and the results and all the gizmos that it can do, you know, like tracking stuff and things. You, you know? know, you're sending all that uh, tracking information back to China too. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> How have the regulations been for drones in the UK? Is it being you guys getting cracked um, down a lot? Yeah, there, there are. You, you, if you're doing it commercially, you've got to do the um, CAA license thing, um, and you know, get your certification so that you can fly these things for commercial purposes. There's obviously the usual restrictions of obviously where you can fly them and what you can do and what you can't do, which all makes perfect sense. You know, unfortunately, as usual, there's a few idiots that spoil it for everyone and go and try and fly these things near an airport or, or something daft. But, um, you know, obviously we're, we're, we're just filming low level stuff and I, I'm, I'm actually using the drone at the moment. The reason I got one is I'm trying to make a documentary, uh, about shipwrecks around the area and I need some footage oh, from the cool. air of, of the islands and the tides and the coastline. Um, so that's kind of why I got the drone and why I'm, I've been enjoying using it. That's interesting. So doing aerials is actually helping you with your diving work on in, in shipwrecks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we're trying to make this documentary uh, about the search for a specific shipwreck that we've been looking for for a couple of years now. Uh, interesting back history on it. It's a World War One thing. I won't go into this. It's quite a long-winded story. Uh, but essentially, I need sort of supporting footage to go with that story. Hmm. So aerial footage of the ocean and the coastline is, 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 has been really useful to support that story. So how do you know where to look? What do you... Studying uh, history. Yeah, there's the secret. Yeah, let's let no. Let's get this. <laughs> let's history. get into this. Okay, so you you have to do a lot of time researching historical records, um, information in archives, um, 
been looking in the French National Navy archives, in the British archives. And then fishermen, um, trawler fishermen usually snag stuff. So you get some good information from them. Uh, you get some uh, good information just from old tales. And then once you narrow down a search area, we go out with something called a side scan sonar and it, you tow it behind. It looks like a torpedo. This sounds like a very expensive proposition, not only expensive in terms of time for the research, but there's a lot of specialized equipment that goes into looking for these shipwrecks. You're not self-funding this, are you? How, how are you doing this with so, with so much to do? Um, well, a lot of the research does take uh, a huge amount of time, and uh, between myself and the group of other divers involved in the project, we share that research time out. We do that in our spare time, um, investigating stuff. Equipment-wise, we have a few boats, um, not nothing special, but boats that we share for diving, or there's boat that we can charter for diving, and the costs are shared. Uh, between us uh, and then one of the divers has a side scan side scan sonar uh, a piece of equipment that he owns that we uh, borrow to use for this so it's kind of a group communal effort really in terms of equipment and uh, etc i mean diving itself uh, when you're doing this with twin sets and stage bottles and dry suits and all of that equipment is reasonably expensive but yeah. you kind of doing it for years and building your equipment up over the years. Um, it's a little bit like photography, really. It's one of those hobbies where you're going to have to spend a few thousand dollars to get yourself kitted out just to go diving. Um, but then obviously, yeah, there are other costs on, on top. But I think, you know, we're managing it as it's a sort of communal group project, if you like. So what's the driving force? Are you more interested in the historical side and doing the study and the research? There's or gold you, on the boat. You, yeah, There's are you gold. interested in trying to discover <laughs> There's this? There's loot. This Captain Carl's right. looking for the loot. <laughs> <laughs> the Nazi gold. Yeah. <laughs> No, there, um, there is no gold on the boat, <laughs> but um, the, 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 I suppose the incentive is that you get the opportunity to rewrite some of history. A lot of the uh, factual or supposedly factual information about this stuff is incorrect because it was written, obviously, World War One is 100 years ago uh, and World War Two 75, whatever, years ago. And some of the stuff that's documented in the history books is actu actually inaccurate, especially when it comes to naval warfare because these events took place out at sea with a minimum amount of people on the boat. Some of those people died or were killed. Uh, it was a state of panic when events happened. And no one really knows whether the boat shot this boat, shot that boat, whether it was torpedoed, etc. So um, the accounts that are written down in the history books are sometimes incorrect and sometimes even the ship's positions of certain shipwrecks that are supposedly known are not the right ship. So um, it's just an opportunity to really discover what actually happened, look at the historical uh, accounts and then take that information but don't take it as gospel and then try to build a st your own evidence it's almost like a detective story in many ways that's fascinating that's a, that's a pretty serious hobby so how much of that takes up it your is. you do that is this a yeah. weekly thing um, once a month no it's weekly uh, most wow. you know if, if we can most weekends or every fortnight um doing it and then in the evenings you know doing some research etc um 
but yeah, it, it, it's, you know, the project that we're working on at the moment is going, is we've been working on it for a while. It's not going to be a three month project. It's going to be a two year project wow. to. So with dry finally... suits and everything, are you, are you diving year round? Yeah. 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 Wow. Do you have a special outfit? To... Do you have a special outfit that you wear when you're going to the boat? Do you dress differently as like diver tailor as opposed to like everyday <laughs> no. photographer? No. Oh. I'm I'm very I'm very scruffy. Um so I just wear whatever's comfortable and warm. Um but the dry suit is ne is a necessity even in the summer here. Um but yeah. in the winter diving the water temperature is as maybe as low as seven or eight Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's it's, cold. it's not very not very warm. <laughs> it's not Fahrenheit. They're called freedom units. You were, you were hoping that he was going to be some sort of Wes Anderson character. Going yeah, to, right. Yeah, no, I was picturing right. him in like a full wool turtleneck with a right, little I cap, know where you were going with a, Glock, a Glock right on his side. <laughs> you know, he's always, got a, he's always got a little bit of whiskey in Maybe his pocket. Maybe a spear. Yeah. A spear would be good. I might, I might have a little bit of whiskey in my pocket. <laughs> yeah. boy. All right. So what's your go-to go drink? Is it? Scotch, red wine, red wine, nah, red wine, yeah. What kind of red my wine? My wife's French. My wife's French, so uh, she's trained me in the ways of red wine. Ah, and um, I really, I, I, I know. To be honest, I like beer and I like wine. So I'll drink a beer, and then I'll I'll drink wine a little bit later. All right, all right. So I'm very simple. Let's get into the marketing side of how you are still getting clients how has that changed over the years for your your just marketing approach and how are you you know getting commercial clients to to shoot products and you shoot a lot of different commercial stuff so where's this all coming from if they're not new uh, if they're if they're new clients um they're not really new clients actually to be honest um we do get occasionally new clients each year there might be a couple of new clients come in that have seen some work that we've done uh, for someone else or it's an ad agency that we've dealt with before and they've got a new client but most of my work uh is existing uh clients um and ad agencies that bring new clients but i'm working for the advertising agency rather than the client directly. Um, so I don't really tend to market myself as a photographer anymore. I've obviously got my own commercial website that's separate to the education thing. And um, that just serves as a sort, sort of portfolio of my work. I mean, back in the day, uh, when I was marketing myself many years ago, I used to get the big leather bound portfolios and acrylic oh, yeah. cover portfolios. I used to get brochures, postcards, and used to have couriers deliver portfolios to different art directors, yeah. to different agencies and try to make appointments and, you know, trying to set up appointments to meet them and, you know, very heavily into the marketing back then. Um, when that was my only, uh, focus, you know, sort of, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, but, um, no, that's not something that I do um, anymore. Your work is interesting to me and there's, you have such a breadth of different styles. Um, and, and I want to ask you about that because you've you do product, you do fashion, um, you do portraits, uh, you do landscapes, you do food, you do beverage. Um, how have you avoided Because for me, I, I, I found I needed to specialize. Um, I needed to become just known as a food and beverage photographer because I had shot a bunch of other stuff as well. Um, everything from interiors to exteriors and, and lifestyle. How are you able to, to kind of do so many different uh, genres of photography and, and, and not be kind of pigeonholed, I guess? 
Um, well, I, I guess really my main genre is product photography. Mm-hmm. Um, so simple, solid objects, anything from cosmetics, alcohol, um, fashion accessories, that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, the, the electronics, that sort of thing. That's what I. That's what I primarily would do as a commercial photographer. Uh, I don't really do food. We, we only did food as a, a byproduct of the education side of things. Mm-hmm. I don't really do fashion either. I mean, that's again, just something that I ended up doing um, for our education platform. I quite enjoyed doing the fashion stuff, the process of doing it. It's quite stressful in a different way. Obviously a lot more people management requirements and dealing with team and, and stuff like that. But I enjoy the process of working with good models because they bring something to the picture that um, that it, it can make it quite um, fascinating. Um, landscapes, I don't really do. I mean, if I'm absolutely honest with you, Rob, most of those other genres are a manifestation of the education business in that, you know, we wanted to deliver content right. for the education business and various content. So I decided to try my hand at some of those other genres for that reason. Some of them I've really enjoyed, uh, some of them not so much. Um, so for me, for example, I don't really like food photography because mm. I find it very, very fussy handling <laughs> these organic things. That's what I love I'm about not it. Very good. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good with mess. I don't like messy stuff. So I get I get frustrated when I get my hands messy. I got a bit OCD, I think. So yeah. solid objects, no problem. But food and organic stuff, I'm not so keen on. The the fashion side of things, really enjoyed the whole visualization of the shoot and the concept and the theme and what you're going to try and achieve. Um, and I think really, when you know lighting, and this is the absolute key thing, when you know lighting and you understand light really well, you can then apply it to any Absolutely. genre. You know, Absolutely. it's that light yeah. is the key thing in everything. Um, you know, yes, composition helps, the aesthetics help, narrative, but without good light, it's it's just ruined. So, yeah. um, if you can get your head around good lighting, you can solve pretty much any photography problem with a bit of patience and a bit of effort. I think that's a great um, so, answer. And and honestly, I appreciate you being so honest about that because that's one of the things that is frustrating for a photographer. When you start to get a sense of, of lighting and understanding your equipment and it becomes second nature, you do feel like you can kind of tackle any genre that you yeah. want to. You should have that freedom. But the marketplace in many ways determines what you are really going to do because that's where your success comes. And I think that's always been a challenge for photographers is being able to kind of move from one genre to the next. And there are a few photographers who do it remarkably well, but most photographers don't get that opportunity. No, and I think this is one of the things why I'm grateful that the education business has happened because my I only get paid for taking pictures of products. Yeah. That's the only... I don't get paid for fashion shoots because we don't do those from a commercial perspective, mm-hmm. only for the education. And as you'll know, Rob, you know, when you're working for an art director or an ad agency, they're telling you what they want you to shoot. And they're kind of telling you how they want you to shoot it based yeah. on a mood board or a brief. So you're not even shooting it for yourself. You're shooting something that someone else wants you to shoot. Absolutely. Um, so, 
so the education side of things gave me and the team the freedom to be experimental and to try different shoots, try different things. You become your own art director. You make your own mood boards. You build your own narrative. And, and that process basically allowed me to experiment and explore these other genres of photography that I probably never would have been able to do um, in the real world yeah. in a commercial sense. So, so for that reason, I'm really grateful that, um, you know, what the education side of the business has provided. Isn't it amazing what you get back when you start to give and teach? Like, I, I found yes. the same thing. It's just amazing what you get back and how you grow when you just start to share your knowledge with other people. It's, pretty, it's a pretty rewarding experience. I'm glad you're having that, that, that experience. It, it is. And, and, you know, I like imparting the knowledge. I think, you know, no matter what it is in life, skills have to be passed down to the next generation mm -hmm. and you get you get in photography was one of those especially and i'm sure it happens in some other industries as well but it was almost like a magic circle you know you weren't allowed to let this knowledge outside oh, everyone closed shop about it and, and hidden and what have you the only way you could learn it was if you were assisting someone etc but i i don't feel that way i, I think you know the next generation uh, then, then the next uh, people working in any given industry, um, they, you know, we need to learn things. Historically, uh, as a species, I suppose back in medieval times, you know, when you had blacksmiths and carpenters and cooks and things like that, people passed that knowledge down more easily. They were, you know, it was important to pass that knowledge down for, for the progress of society. Of society. Right. Exactly. And, and I don't see anything wrong with that. Obviously, you know, it's, it, it's maybe a little bit rich of me to say it like this because we charge for education mm -hmm. uh, the same as you guys. But we try to keep it reasonable. Uh, we try to give very good information and very good knowledge. Um, and, you know, even when I'm running workshops or doing talks at, at different shows, I enjoy the process of explaining how something is done. So for me, as well as the, the fact that the this business has allowed me to shoot many different genres um it, it it's also allowed me to impart my enthusiasm for it because i've always yeah. been extremely passionate i'm sure as you have too uh, about photography since i was young and i'm as passionate about it now as as i've always been um so it's it's always nice to share that passion all right let's go back to medieval times what would you be doing if, if, if Carl Taylor was living in medieval times? What would be, what would be your profession? Oh, wow. What would be my profession? Rob, think of it too, because I'm asking know. you I, next. Yeah. I would, I would like to say that I would have been some skilled swordsman in a battle, but I would be too scared to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, what have you, what about you? Medieval think, Rob. Uh, medieval Rob either would have been some sort of king or overlord, oh, or I would have been running. Taxing the people. Been, yeah, or I would have the been Rob tax. running the torture chamber in the Spanish Inquisition. Or Bobby something. De Niro is getting money perfect. from everyone. Oh, yeah. I'm going to shake people down. <laughs> I, I would have probably, I would have probably been the joke. At the, uh, the jester, at the, the jester, yeah, the jester. The jester gets all the wine and the women. Good answer. And what would you be, Gary? Well, since king is taken, yeah. I probably would have been the queen. <laughs> Queen's got the life, you know. She doesn't do much until she gets beheaded. Well, it's all right, you know. Uh, no. 
So actually, let's talk about the European market. Um, I'd love to know your thoughts on the European market for photographers now, because I think Europe is such a different place than the United States in so many ways. I mean, we have all of our markets. We've got big cities like New York and Los Angeles and Chicago that have their own challenges for photographers. Then you have smaller secondary markets like St. Louis and Louisville, and then you have even smaller markets than that uh, where people are doing more, um, you know, kind of senior portraits and, and that kind of thing. What yep. is it like in Europe now, uh, coming up as a photographer? Because you not only have they're not in so, Europe anymore, Rob. So many have you not been paying attention. No, they're not done yet. <laughs> they're they're working that cry oh, yeah, that pry bar. Yeah. No, but I'm really <laughs> curious. What's it like for a photographer over there? Because you have not only the challenges of different countries, but different languages and so many different client bases. Yeah. Um, well, I think the market, as you described it, you know, with your major cities and then your sub subsidiary sort of ones from there is exactly the same here. You know, we have your your London, your Paris, Paris your Milan, yeah. your, 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 ma your major cities, Berlin, etc. And they've all got their own hubs of manufacturing or different fashion labels or different, um, you know, uh, luxury brands, etc., or cars and things like that, car manufacturing or whatever. Um, so there will be specialist photographers associated with those cities and with those particular industries. And then from there, stepping down, you'll have your slightly smaller cities where there'll be some successful commercial photographers operating in those cities because there may be another sort of industry there or sub-industry um the i think like you said with the language thing though that's an important interesting one because obviously um in in paris they're obviously speaking french mm -hmm. so you've got the french photographers there um but you know they do move around i mean there's a guy in paris uh, one of my favorite um still life product photographers i think he's probably one of the best in the world a guy called peter lipman oh yeah um and he he's from new york originally but he's yeah. lived in paris for 20 years learned the language and he operates out of paris shooting for chanel and you know a lot of big brands uh, and then I've got, you know, other photographer friends in London that shoot globally um, because they're with agents that represent them in different cities and different countries. Um, I've seen some of the European photographers pick up um, a reasonable amount of work from China, um, you know, as China's grown over the years. So they've employed some of the European photographers to come to Beijing and shoot a campaign there, for example. Uh, I've got another product photographer friend who was recently in Russia, in Moscow, shooting uh, for a drinks brand, a Russian drinks brand there. So we, we do move around yeah. uh, regardless of the language obviously most of the european countries will all speak english in a business uh, sense so, in a, big, sure. a business sphere um but yeah each city will have its own top photographers as well so i think it's quite similar probably to the usa apart from the language thing if you were starting your career today in Europe, where would you go? Would you stay in the UK? Would you head to Berlin? Where would you Where would you open your studio if you were a young European photographer today? Um, I don't know. I, I like Paris a lot, mm -hmm. um, and pa Paris, London, I find too crazy when I'm working there. It's just too. It's too. It's a little bit too big, and I find it a little bit oppressive. I don't mind working there for a week. But more than that, and I just want to get out the place, um, whereas Paris is much smaller than London. You know, it's probably a quarter or a fifth of the size. And there's a different sort of atmosphere in Paris 
for me with the sort of street culture and the cafe culture and it just feels a little less oppressive so i think paris would be my choice although i think now given the way the market is shifting given what i know about the industry I think if I was starting right now, then I'd be looking at things to do with video filmmaking and CGI as well as photography um, as part of the, the bundle. And that's kind of what I'm recommending to new photographers is that I don't think going forwards we're going to be able to rely just on shooting stills yeah. alone. Oh, absolutely not. Um, well, you know, I some of my... Some of my colleagues and fellow photographers that are successful commercial or advertising photographers are already, um, you know, using CGI, using uh, film media uh, mediums. Some of them have moved on to directing television commercials and other stuff as well. I myself have worked as, you know, a lighting consultant on television commercials because sometimes the TV guys – they, you know, they know how to tell a story, but then they, 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 they don't know how to light things as well as a stills photographer might. Right. So, you know, they, they come sometimes as a consultant to say, well, how do I make this thing look as amazing as, as you can yep. make it look with light, you know? Right. Well, um, you brought so, up, so, so that happens. You brought up CGI, and I definitely wanted to talk about this because you are a product photographer. At the rate that that is evolving, do you think that there's even going to be a need for product photographers three, five 10 years down the road with how easy it might get to actually make something completely perfect? Yeah, well, that's a very good question, Gary, because um, I think 10 years down the road from now, it's certainly going to change. It's already changing. I mean, we've seen car photography pretty much go out the window in place of CGI and the photographers are now just shooting the, the plates, if you like, the backgrounds yep. and the, the hemispheres to map the reflections into the car. Um, products a lot of products um if they are if a 3d model is made of them then the photographer only has to render it and light it what what i've seen and i've noticed in the industry here is for example uh do you have ikea in america of the course. big furniture yeah. oh yeah right yeah so so this is a big swedish um company and obviously huge in Europe and they produce catalogs and images yeah. of their interiors and their products. Now, most of that stuff is CGI'd, most of those interiors, but they're very, very photorealistic. But they started doing that in-house and they didn't really get it right. And in the end, they realized that it wasn't the technology, it was the knowledge of how to light things that was missing. So they actually employed some decent photographers to come in and show them how to light it and explain to the CGI operators what kind of lighting they needed to be putting in place to create the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So I think this is the advantage that good stills photographers will have for some time is that just because you know how to do CGI doesn't mean to know, doesn't mean to say you know how to light something. Um, now we can translate that lighting information into CGI, but you need to have learned that lighting information to begin with to, to really understand and appreciate how to make a product look its best. So that's why I think stills photographers will still have a place as long as they adopt some of this new yeah. technology and teach themselves about it. But of course that is the way it's going to go. It's going to go more to CGI because as you guys know, from a commercial perspective, the client only cares about two things, quality 
and price cost. and craft yeah, services exactly. too. So, that's that's yeah. the third. There's yeah. a third one. It's craft services. Yeah. So, <laughs> so 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 if 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 the market says that it's cheaper to do it CGI and it's better quality, then that's what will happen. Yeah. Agreed. At the moment. It's not ha- that's not the case. It's not cheaper to do it CGI necessarily in all cases, and it doesn't always look better. What we're seeing right now is an amalgamation of the two, where you have photographers CGIing some elements and then photographing other elements and then bringing them together. But the people that are doing it best are still those people that are stills photographers with a knowledge of lighting. So I think photographers just need to upskill themselves and get a handle on these extra tools and use them to position themselves in the market uh, for the future. I think by the time it comes about, I mean, I'm 50 years old, so in 10 years time, I'll be 60. I'm not really going to probably care too much about it then anyway. Um, So, you know, but I think, um, Yes, it's going to happen. It's inevitable like anything, you know. Yeah, Um, I don't know if it's going to totally kill photography, though. I think it's going to have a huge impact. But for some reason, and I could be totally wrong, I just don't see the technology completely wiping out. It's not like, you know, when, when the computer came around and desktop publishing became a thing, it literally wiped out the typesetting industry because it was so much cheaper and so much faster and so much better. It completely wiped out that industry. I think you're right. For 10 years, I I, I guarantee we're safe. Um, But I just don't, I I have the feeling it's not going to completely kill product photography. I think you're right. Yeah. What about for people, That, like AI of creating a face? Yeah, that's going to be crazy. There are fashion catalogs that aren't, that aren't, aren't real people. It. Yeah, there aren't real people there. So I, is that I, right? Let, let, me, let, me, let me put a question to you. For example, um, if you take a product shot, if it's just the product on its own, that's fine. That can be modeled and CGI'd. But lots of advertising shots include organic materials like liquids flying or splashes yeah. and other factors or, you know. So it's if you've got a CGI something, you can just as well maybe do it in in photography terms and and create more alternatives and more options oh, because absolutely. you can repeat yeah. you know the, the the liquid throw or whatever it is right and there you get so, you get to repeat the process but you get a different effect a different result because you're using an organic where in CGI they're rendering one particular pathway and it's a exactly. whole it's a whole another workflow to have to go back and do it again. You're not it's not like when you were, you know, dumping the, the paint cans down the ramps. You it was the yeah. same mechanical process, right? You had those those ramps set exactly where you needed them to be, so the three cans hit in the same spot. But by changing the amount of paint you have in each can, by pushing or, or pulling back a little bit on the speed of any one of those three cans, you're getting a very different visual effect, which a CG artist yeah. is not going to be able to create the hundred different versions that you as a photographer can create in an hour. It's just not, not possible. Exactly. Well, just because and, that's, and that so software isn't written yet, but I mean, wouldn't that be just as easy if that technology came out, someone wrote it? Those are just like sliders and things you turn off and on to like be able to change. Maybe and if, they, and if they can get get to that point where, yeah, because your you're processors are getting fast enough. Yeah. You just need maybe, maybe but power. I, think, I think I think photography still has that advantage, as you were saying there, Rob. Almost of what what we would be what we call chaos theory, really. Yeah, you know? absolutely. There, there are elements of the unknown and what's going to happen and slight 
permutations, variations. Um, whereas in a CGI image, that they kind of have to design what they think it should look like. And often it doesn't look organic enough. It looks CGI. It's got a yes. certain, almost like the artist put it there because that's the nice shape. And it doesn't right. have that element of chaos or variability about it that a real image would have. So I think we're still safe for the time being, but I think we are going to see more and more combination of both arts coming together and i think photographers should be aware of that for the future not so much in portrait photography because obviously portrait and people that's the person that's who they are you're you're not going to go and to a studio for a family portrait and have your whole family cgi'd you know that that would be silly really you want to capture who you are so i don't see it affecting that market but obviously that market has already been affected by people just taking their own photos rather than going to a portrait studio uh, as much as people would have in uh, 10 years ago for example yeah i see cgi as actually being a little too perfect when it comes to composition because they can mm-hmm. really think about where things go versus the chaos theory where you've got this you know spontaneity that creates asymmetry that just happens it you can't yeah you're not forcing it it just happens you're capturing it yeah it's different yeah and that and, and that is actually sometimes one of the most fun things isn't it it's like that's you're, one of the best parts of being a photographer for me you yeah. know love that yeah you 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 you're, you're seeing you 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 give yourself the best chance of getting all these elements at this particular right. space this particular moment with this particular lighting but what evolves from that can be really exciting because it's unknown and that, honestly, that's what I've always liked about this business. You were talking a, a, a while ago about uh, working with clients and, and art directors, and they give you these set parameters, and these images aren't for you. In many ways, that's what I like about it. They've given me a box of things mm-hmm. that, that I have to include, you know, that have to be in this image. But that still gives me freedom in many ways to kind of look for opportunities where things are going to go d- different than I expected. Um, but I'm using my knowledge set and, and my history in the business to understand how to set up scenarios where I can have a little bit of happenstance and have something kind of be chance that I didn't know was going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's like, ah, oh, that's it. It's, I, I still find it challenging. Well, certainly, and that's fun. certainly with, with obviously, because you're dealing as well with food photography, which is more yeah. organic, obviously, and, and, and there are Very. more variables, but it, it doesn't sit solid in many ways. No. No one moves. It's crazy. I've got some questions for the community. I'm going to rapid fire some questions from our community. You ready for this, Carl? You're on the hot seat now. Would you Would you rather lose all of your money and valuables, or all of the pictures you've ever taken? (laughs) That's a weird question. (laughs) Um. That's a good one, isn't it? That's a tough one. It's on the hot seat. So I suppose it depends. If my are, are all of my money and valuables insured or not? <laughs> They're not. Atta boy. They're not. <laughs> well, then at this late stage in my career, given that I've got a family to support, yep. a mortgage to pay, I'm going to have to lose all of my pictures because the whole purpose of my career was to fund my mortgage my family and everything yep. else and send my kids to school so uh, i'm afraid the pictures will have to go I, i'm with Fair you enough. i would have to have to give up the pictures because I, I you got family and they come first all right question and, number two and, and I'm not, 
Yeah. Question okay. number two. Would you rather your shirts always be two sizes too big or one size too small? <laughs> two sizes too big. <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather go a month without showering or a month without the internet? I go a month without showering already. <laughs> um, I, I, I can switch off the internet for a month, no problem. Um, as a matter of fact, I wish I could sometimes. Um, you know what it's like. You have to do this social media stuff. You have to be connected and all the rest of it. But when I go on holiday, I try to disconnect. Would you rather always be 10 minutes late or always be 20 minutes early. That's easy. 20 minutes early. Yeah. Would you rather have a completely automated home or a self-driving car? Neither. No way. I don't like, can't buy, oh no, I can't stand either of those things. Fair enough. So would you, would you I'm rather live in a tent? Would you rather kill one innocent person or five people who committed misdemeanors? Who sent um, in this question? Uh, all right, okay. I, I First of all, if you change if you can change the misdemeanors to five people that committed seriously bad, nasty crimes, yeah. then I'll kill those five people. <laughs> misdemeanors, I've committed a few misdemeanors myself, so I don't really think that's a fair one to go on. No. So fair I can't enough. answer that one. Fair enough. Would you rather have an easy job making good money working for someone else? Or would you rather work for yourself and it's incredibly hard and stressful? Do I make any money working for myself? You do, but it's real hard. It's real stressful. I probably still go for the working for myself bit because I've always worked for myself. I don't, I don't work for other people very well. I think I'd get fired. Fair enough. Would you rather be transported permanently 500 years into the future or 500 years into the past? The future, because we've already seen the past. I'd like to see what the future holds. I did not think he was going to answer that way. This guy is is looking at the bottom of the English Channel for a ship. I, I thought know. he was going to go the historical route for sure. No, he, he yeah, wants. But the thing is, we, we've already seen the past, and and much of it is documented to some extent, and we can look at that. But the future is an unknown, and that's fascinating. Yeah. All right. Would you rather have super sensitive taste? or super sensitive hearing? Uh, I'd probably rather have the super sensitive taste, but that would be dangerous because I reckon I'd be about 200 kilograms uh, <laughs> extra heavy if I <laughs> had the super sensitive taste. So I, I better go for the hearing. Would you rather never lose your phone again or never lose your keys again? Oh, God, these questions. Yeah, these are weird. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, I um, if losing your phone is a real pain in the ass these days, isn't it? Because all your stuff's on it and everything else. Although, given that you most of it is backed up to the cloud or whatever, I'll lose my I'll lose my phone. I'll lose my phone. Would you rather be able to control water or fire? Water. Oh yeah, then you'd find that ship. I could move it like could, Moses yeah, right. to one side. All right. That's, that's the end of the questions from the community. Wow. <laughs> Thank God for that. <laughs>
Clearly, we have a weird community. Spoiler alert. <laughs> that was, that was from the that community. That was not from the community, yeah. <laughs> Curveball. Yeah, they're all too homogeneously, homogeneously weird yeah. to be from the, the uh, audience. Uh, it, was, it was an interesting little test, though. It was almost like a psychological test. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we learned a lot about you through those questions. <laughs> Carl, for sure. Carl killed a guy. <laughs> no, he killed five. Yeah, he killed five I killed people. Five. I killed five nutters. <laughs> So, Carl, for all the people that are just getting into the industry, what advice would you bestow upon them just starting out? Um, the, the advice I'm going to bestow on them is kind of what we spoke about earlier, and, and it's what I wish I'd bestowed upon myself at the start, and that was learn about light. Learn lighting even if you're a natural light photographer, understand the fundamental physics of light, how it interacts with properties, how it reflects, understand luminosity, reflectance, radiance, every single physical property to do with light and how you can somewhat control it and manipulate it, obviously in a studio environment, that will advance you far, far further than learning about composition, for example. I think it's great advice. What advice do you have for people that think they need that fancy new Sony A7R4 with 61 megapixels? People need that? Don't, don't waste your money. Um, spend your money on a half-decent camera body that will do the job and then save the rest of the money and spend it on good lenses instead. What's your favorite lens? Do you have one? Uh, on the Hasselblad, it is the 100 millimeter 2.2 lens. Hmm. What's your favorite lens, Rob? 120 macro. 120 macro. No question. What it, now, you see, that's interesting. Is, is that on the medium format, Rob? Yeah. 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 So for me, um, I don't use that lens because I find it puts me too far away from the products. So the shorter focal length, the 80 millimeter uh, fixed lens and the 100 mil, I use those with the uh, extension tubes you do. because I okay. feel they give me a little bit more intimacy to the product, as in I'm closer to the product. So the perspective on the product feels closer, feels a little bit more intimate. Um, so I don't use the 120 mil macro. Really? I, I love it. I've been using it for a long time and it's... Uh... It, honestly, it is the lens that is used almost exclusively in my food work. Um, rarely would yeah. I put on a hundred or an eighty. Um, and then w with my with my product, uh, the boost stuff, I use I use the one twenty a lot as well. I, but I like the really yeah. shallow depth of field. I like getting in close. I like really shallow depth. Yeah, of field. no, a lot of a lot of photographers use the one twenty, and I, yeah. and I have used it as well. But um, generally, most of my work. Uh, product work is is on the 80 millimeter lens or the 100 millimeter lens with an extension tube. Wow, interesting. If you could only have one of those 5,000 lighting modifiers behind you, which <laughs> one would it be? Which one would you keep? Um, my, favorite, my favorite one is the Para 133, oh, that's a good which is actually, is it that one? That yeah, one yeah. there. Yeah. That one is is really good for beauty portrait fashion um it's not i mean obviously as rob will know you know when you're trying to do gradient lighting you need scrims and what have you so you, you know your modifier is just a piece of trace but for hmm. most other stuff that that 133 power is my favorite 
What's yours, Rob? The 88? The 88. I love the 88. I was it the 88 they discontinued, or was it a different pair they discontinued? Uh, no, they changed them. Like, the, t- the 220, they changed to the 222. Like, I, I, I two. Yeah, I have a couple of the older 220s. Um, but they didn't dis- – I don't think they yeah, discontinued the, the older- they didn't discontinue the any of the It was the, two, it was the, the 220. Yeah, it was the 220 that I was thinking. Say again, Carl? The, the older 220s, you had to use the ring flash. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the new 222 has got the more central mounted rod. Yeah. Um, and and the, two, the 222 is lovely, is lovely, but it's, it's more, of a, more of a fashion. And yeah, it's a monster. Field light. Yeah. It's a monstrous light. It's the Ferrari of lights. It's huge. Well, Carl, what's next on your agenda? What are you working on this year? What are you working towards? Um, well, we've got um, we, we've got some more fashion stuff. We're going to start shooting in September, and then I'm over in Switzerland in early September with Broncolor doing some new how-to videos for those guys. Uh, working with uh, Oz Recker, the uh, in-house photographer at Broncolor. Uh, and then uh, end of September, I'm in Beijing with uh, another photographer called Tim Flack. He's a very famous animal photographer. He does studio animal portraits, and he publishes a lot of book, does a lot of fine artwork. So I'm running a workshop with him uh, in Beijing in uh, end of September. And then uh, in between that, we've got our usual uh, stuff that we do here, like you guys do, you know, making new content and um uh, you know, doing doing those sort of things, and then uh, whatever general commercial work comes in and out the door in between, really. Rob, I got a great idea. What's that? We should do two days food photography workshop, two days with Carl Product. Boom, St. Louis. That'd put be- it on the calendar. <laughs> Boom, London. Louis. Put it on yeah. the calendar. <laughs> or yeah, no. We- yeah. I'm gonna get out of St. Louis. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> we'll do it in Paris. Actually, I'm down for that. We're going to do it in Paris. That sounds great. Well, Carl, thank you uh, for hopping on this, the first evolution of the new podcast for the yeah. Pro-EDU. We, we really appreciate it. Where can everyone go to find out uh, your websites, your social media, and stalk you online? Um, okay, so my commercial portfolio is uh, carltaylor.com. That's Carl with a K and Taylor with a Y. And then the other one is carltaylereducation.com. So... Th- the T is silent. Taylor media, with a Y. Conf- silent. Rob didn't laugh at that. <laughs> no. Like that. Oh, congratulations on, on everything that you've pulled together. Your site's fabulous. Um, and you, you really are offering a lot of great client, great content to your to your subscribers. And uh, we Thank wish you, you the best yeah, of luck. It's great. Congratulations to you guys as well. Because um, as you said, you know, we followed your, your work. You're one of the... The, the only other sort of education providers that's providing what I consider to be sort of, you know, top level Agreed. Um, education. So. Yeah. Agreed. There are not, there's so many people putting out educational content and most of it's terrible. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Bottom line. Bottom line. You, you got to invest in quality. Invest. Don't do it the cheap way. No the cheap way, way is, it, it's easy. Nothing easy is going to be good. Nope. It's a rule of life. <laughs> All right, Carl. Uh, Carl, thank you. Thank you again so much. And uh, everyone, thank Thank you you so much for listening. If you're not watching this, you can go to proedu.com and download this episode. Just click on podcast and boom. It's just a button away. It's just a button away, Rob. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get out of here. All right. Proedu is now unlimited. Get access to every single tutorial. 
Sign up at ProEDU.com today. Podcast is officially over. See you next time. Yeah. Never stop.